0: We might say that if today's sermon lives up to what we just heard Jesus say in today's gospel, by the time I'm done, all y'all will decide to run me off the nearest cliff. (laughs) Thankfully, there aren't any actual cliffs in Oak Cliff, as far as I'm aware. But as you might have noticed, I'm wearing my Nikes today just in case I have to make a break for it. (coughs) We are preaching every Sunday in the season of Epiphany, as you know, on Jesus, as a way of seeking out who the real Jesus is, whose birth we celebrated on Christmas. The lectionary all of these weeks has been moving us through the highlights of the beginning of Christ's ministry. Jesus was baptized, you'll recall, in the River Jordan, and the heavens opened up and the Father said, You are my Son, the Beloved, with you I am well pleased. Then there was Jesus' first miracle at Cana when he turned water into wine. (coughs) Word started to spread. And then last Sunday we saw that he went back to his hometown, Nazareth. He walked into the synagogue one Sabbath day and told everyone that what the prophets had foretold about the Messiah bringing good news to the poor and sight to the blind was coming true right then in their hearing through him. That's where we pick up the story today. Jesus comes back to his hometown to preach his first sermon. And it has to be said, it didn't go well. The people he grew up with were filled with rage, the text says, so much so that they tried to throw him off a cliff. The main question I want us to ask this morning is, why? Why did the people who knew him best get so violently angry at him? And what does that tell us about who Jesus is? I think that today's story is actually a good reminder of why we're preaching about Jesus in the season of Epiphany. Lent will be here pretty soon, in only four and a half weeks. And the gospel texts in Lent each Sunday will start moving us step by step toward the cross. Well, if our Lord was nothing, from, nothing but the dear sweet baby Jesus from that Will Ferrell movie Tag- Talladega Nights and sentimental Christmas specials, well, then the story of his life wouldn't have needed to go toward the cross. No one would have bothered If all Jesus told people was to be nice and love everyone, sort of like a hallmark card, no one would have bothered to kill him, right? We ministers are sometimes guilty, I think, of watering down Jesus so much that he couldn't possibly have offended anyone. No one would have wanted to put him on the cross. Well, if we do that, it's not Jesus anymore. It's not the real Jesus. It's just our idea of Jesus. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Without a word to say that could ever challenge us to change or grow. We're preaching about Jesus in Epiphany because you and I need the real Jesus. Not just our idea of Jesus. Mother Emily preached a couple of weeks ago on how real love will often mean challenging someone in ways that aren't comfortable. Them or for you, that may well make them angry. I don't know about you, but one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible is when Jesus meets the rich young ruler who asks him what he must do to inherit eternal life. The Bible says first that Jesus looked at him and loved him, and then he told him to go and sell everything he owned and gave it to the poor tells us that Christ's love for us comes first. He doesn't challenge us in order to destroy us or make us feel bad. That's what we're used to in this world, I admit, but it's not what Jesus does. He challenges us because he loves us. He sometimes gives us words that sound hard or difficult because they hit us in an area of our lives where we need to grow Well, I hope that happens to you this season, and to me. I hope that as we spend these weeks together focusing on Jesus, that we're all confronted by the distance between our idea of Jesus and the real Jesus. I hope, I'm not not going to avoid saying, I hope that something about the real Jesus gets under your skin, perhaps even makes you a little mad. I hope you then move past that to growth. One of our core values in this church, really any church, is that we're all called to grow in faith and discipleship. And that's a big part of why we come every Sunday to hear God's word. That's part of why we gather in small groups for Bible study. If you're just following your idea of Jesus, then it's not really Jesus you're following. It's yourself. And how will we ever know the difference between our idea of Jesus and the real Jesus unless we spend time in God's holy word with hearts open to be challenged to grow? Let's get back to our question. Why in this passage do the people of Nazareth become so angry at Jesus? And what does it tell us about the real Jesus? Well, I think we can sum it up This morning, in two words. The real Jesus in this story, I think, is both too exclusive and also too inclusive for the people of Nazareth to take. Both sides of the coin get the man. And if we're honest, they may well make us a little angry, too. So, what do I mean by that? Let's look first at the exclusive part of the coin. We have to go back to the first part of the story from last week to understand, I think, why Jesus is being too exclusive. Because Jesus, last week, had the audacity to say that he was the fulfillment of Isaiah's Messianic prophecy in person. He said that the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. Me. You have to remember that this is a guy who everyone in town knew. They saw him grow up. It would be a little like me announcing one Sunday morning that I personally am the Savior of the world. You probably say to yourself, are you kidding? I shouldn't have complimented that guy on his preaching. Clearly it went straight to his head. Now, you all would probably do the civilized thing and call the bishop instead of run me off a cliff, but one way or another, it would probably be my last sermon here. And rightly so. If I did that, it would be crazy. It would be crazy for me to say that I'm the savior of the world. I'd have to be some kind of egomaniac, right? Well, you see what I'm getting at the great Anglican C.S. Lewis had this to say about who Jesus claimed to be. Lewis said, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic, or else he would be a devil from hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He did not leave that option open to us. He did not intend to. So ends Lewis. I think that that illuminates for us the first part of what's going on in this story today. The people of Nazareth were angry for good reason. They understood what Jesus was trying to say, and they rejected it. This guy's crazy. This guy is the son of God? The carpenter's son who built my back porch? You and I, I think, are confronted just the same with the audacity of what Jesus says. In Sunday school, we're studying St. Paul's letter to the Colossians. And Paul says the very same thing. Jesus, he writes, is the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, in whom all things hold together, through whom God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether in earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood on the cross. Brothers and sisters, if this is true, then there is nothing more important this is true, then there is nothing more important than our response to Jesus. If this is the one true God, the Lord and Savior of the world, then He is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. If He were just a great moral teacher and spiritual guru, it makes sense to follow Him halfway, to kind of mix and match with other teachers with good insights. But if that's not what He is... There can be no halfway in our response to obey Him as Lord and worship Him as God. That sounds exclusive, doesn't it? It may sound offensive, and if it didn't, then I probably wasn't preaching it right. It sounded offensive to the people of Nazareth, and it should sound that way today. That said, if that's all there was to say, then you may well conclude that the people of Nazareth were right. The exclusive claims of Jesus, of course, have sometimes been abused by his followers. We all know that. Christians have sometimes used them to say that we've cornered the market on this God business, that we don't have anything to learn from anyone else. Or we think, or we like to think, that it means we're better than people of other faiths. Or it means that everybody else is just going to hell. Well, there are some good questions to be raised here. C.S. Lewis, I think, had some good things to say about it in his Chronicles of Narnia and elsewhere. But without trying to answer everything this morning, let me just say that I think we need to emphasize both sides of the coin. Jesus is both more exclusive and more inclusive. And the people of Nazareth were comfortable with. More than once in our passage today, he points out that God's saving power bypassed the chosen people Israel and went instead to outsiders, enemies, and pagans. Naaman the Syrian was the commander of an army that was attacking Israel. Jesus commands us elsewhere in the Gospels to love our enemies. And here he's saying that this is what God has always done. God loves God's enemies. His grace and saving power isn't just for Israel. It's for Israel's enemies too. To put a point on it, imagine, if you will, Jesus going to Jerusalem today and telling a story about how God healed Naaman, the commander of the army of Iran, or the PLO, or Hamas. Imagine him walking into the White House today and telling the same story about God healing Hillary Clinton. Or walking into the Democratic Convention and telling the story about Donald Trump. How would people react? Would they seek to throw him off a cliff? Well, if he did that to you, would it bother you, do you think? Would it make you angry? Is there someone or some group that you think are so obviously wrong and dangerously immoral that it makes your blood boil just to think about it? Would it make you angry if Jesus got up here today and said, they're my precious children. I love them. And I died for their salvation too. I wore my Nikes today for a reason. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus didn't come to abolish the difference between right and wrong. He didn't do away with the need for all of us to repent. When we are included in the body of Christ at baptism by grace, we are all called to transform lives. And that call to repentance and transformation includes those people who we think are so wrong that it makes our heads spin and our blood boil. It includes our enemies just like it includes you and me. But, when our anger reaches the point where we'd rather see our enemies destroyed and saved, when we'd rather lash out and do them harm instead of seeing them repent and become our friends, it's then, I think, that we most need to follow Jesus by reaching out in love with grace (coughs) to include the sinner's the tax collectors, the pagans, the people of every nation, race, and tribe under heaven, and to invite them also to hear the good news that there is one God, one Lord, one Savior, one name given under heaven by which we all may be saved by grace and mercy alone, Jesus Christ, the one who died not only for us and for our salvation. For the sins of the whole world, so that we all might worship him as one body in Christ.